0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We are going to finish this chapter this morning by looking at verses 17 through 21. And I would remind you, as we're looking at them, of the context in which Paul is writing these words Verse 1, it is the in view of the mercies of God. And uh, Paul has been laboring to explain those mercies, the beautiful picture of the gospel in chapters 1 through 11. Here in chapter 12, he's explaining now how that mercies, that gospel forms a, a foundation for, for right thinking, for right relationships, uh, for, for right living In verses 1 and 2, we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, being transformed by a renewed mind. In verses 3 through 8, we're we're to to think rightly about ourselves. This renewed mind helps us to understand who we are in Christ and our place in the body of Christ. Verses 9 through 16, that transformation includes how we relate to one another, how we love one another. And now here in verses 17 through 21, how that love stretches to even those who would do evil against us. Listen to his words, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Lord, we thank You for Your Word today. We ask that You would please, by the power of Your Spirit, illumine our hearts and minds to it, giving us ears to hear and hearts that are ready, willing, able to receive Your Word. And that You would do Your transforming work in our hearts and lives, making us more like Your Son, Jesus. I pray that You would use me today as Your servant, Lord. I pray that You would increase and I would decrease and Your Word would go forth, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Learning to love one's enemies might be one of the most difficult things in the Christian life, primarily because it goes against our our carnal, fleshly nature. Uh, when we are wronged, we instinctively want to retaliate. It's one of our first responses. Um, you hit me, I want to hit you back. It starts as little little children, perhaps. you, And then it, it keeps going. If you cut me off in the traffic, I'm going to speed around you and cut you off. Uh, and if you insult me, then I'm going to insult you. Several years ago, there was a man named Dave Hagler who was pulled over for driving too fast in the snow, and he was given a ticket. He, he, he tried to talk the officer out of it. He told the officer about his excellent driving record and, and uh, his concern over rising insurance costs and so forth, but the policeman was really unconcerned about that. And, in fact, he was a bit rude as he, he just told the man, if you don't like it, you can take it to court. Well, a short time later, the softball season began in the community, and Hagler, the man who received the ticket, was umpiring behind home plate, and you'll never guess who walked up to bat, that that policeman who had sighted him, and both men recognized each other right off the bat, and, and the police officer uh, kind of sheepishly asked, how did that thing go with the ticket, uh, to which... Hagler's response, I think, was priceless. He simply told the merciless policeman, swing at everything, he says. <laughs> when our, our pride is wounded, our sense of justice demands some sense of retaliation. We, we think to ourselves, you'll, you'll never get away with this. I'm going to get you back if it's the last thing that I do. Or, or we, get, we, we, we say something like, I don't get mad, I get even." Have you thought about what that means by the way? Someone said one time man is a strange creature. He tries to get ahead of his friends and even with his enemies. Why would we want to be even with them in evil doing? And yet that's often the desires of our hearts. And and if you've ever been hurt deeply, you know how hard it is to release that resentment. To the Lord. I think that's why Paul's words here are so difficult and challenging. These verses describe how Christians should respond to evildoers. And there's uh, four kind of resounding negative imperatives that when someone wrongs you, beginning in verse 14, he says, Do not curse them. Uh, Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. And there's a sense in which all four are kind of saying the same thing, But retaliation and revenge are absolutely forbidden for a follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that each of these responses were taught either directly by Jesus or were allusions or applications to things that he taught. For example, when Paul says in verse 14, blessed Uh, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. He he seems to be quoting Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, who said, bless those who curse you. Um, When Paul says in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, we we think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, when he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil." When Paul says in verse 18, live peaceably with all. We think of Jesus' words, Matthew 9, verse 50, who said, be at peace with one another. Or verse 20, when Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. We think of Jesus' words, Luke 6, 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. At every point that Paul is making, he, he's grounded his commands in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, in fact, because when Jesus died on the cross he, and was reviled, you remember, Peter says, He did not revile in return. He did not avenge Himself. In fact, He overcame the evil of the cross and achieved the, the highest good, our salvation, our redemption. These are not just imperatives of Paul that are are, are out there alone, these imperatives rest on the very work and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just a call to imitate Jesus in these things, but to trust in Jesus for these things, to trust Him for salvation, to depend on Him, to let Him live through us. It is in view of Christ's mercies that we're not to repay evil for evil, take vengeance into our own hands and thus be overcome by evil. We're called to respond differently. That's not the most shocking thing that Paul says in the text, though, I think, because Paul goes on to list four positive responses which with each of these negatives. It's not just that we shouldn't retaliate or we shouldn't take revenge on those who wrong us. We also, he says, must uh, must in effect love those who do evil against us. We must respond positively to them. In fact, Paul says not only do Christians know that they ought to love their enemies, but, that, but, but the true Christians in the context of this passage, they, they want to love their enemies because they have been so loved by God. Remember Romans 5.5 5, where it said that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's not that we have to love one another, but that that, that Christians want to love others. And this is not only what I ought to do, but what I can do, and what I have the opportunity to do for the glory of God every day, to love others, and even to love those who sin against me. So what do these this love look like how does he describe this response to our enemies that we're to have he, he 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 shares several applications for us first he says do what is honorable verse 17 repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all we're, we're to refuse to get even we're to refuse to pay back evil for evil, and it doesn't matter who does the evil to you. He says, Repay no one evil for evil. God's forbidding personal retaliation and plots for revenge. He's forbidding that. Instead, he says, We are to give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. I think the King James Version says something like, Provide things honest. In the sight of all, the word means honest, good, uh, fitting, uh, favorable, honorable. Note, and notice he says we're to take thought in advance to do this. When someone does something evil to us, it's often our natural response to respond back, to retaliate. But, but he's saying here that you, we, we have to premeditate to do good. We, we have to predispose ourselves to do good, when it's, it's a preparation. There, there's a premeditated goodness. We're not to get caught off guard by this. But we're to be prepared to respond with goodness, with honesty, with honor. Christians are to lead the way in doing this, lead the way in good and right things. We're to be known as those who are thinking and doing this way. Leon Morris Puts it like this, Paul is calling on them to live out the implications of the gospel. Their lives are to be lived on such a high plane that even the heathen will recognize the fact. They will always be living in the sight of non-Christians, and the way they live should be such as to commend the essential Christian message. And again, where did Paul get this? There's no doubt he got this from our Lord Jesus, right? And the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5 Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And notice the reason, he goes on, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, he says the world is going to respond to goodness with goodness. It's going to respond to love with love. But, but if you're a child of God, a recipient of His great love, a, a child of your heavenly Father, you respond with love to those who hate you and goodness to those who do evil against you. And we're, you're to prepare yourself in this, to put yourself in a particular thought frame, uh, a, a, a place of mind, premeditated, planned responses of love and humility and goodness give thought to it he says to do what is honorable secondly Paul commands us to live peaceably if possible verse 18 if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all there are lots of ways to lose peace in this life, quarrels, accidents, diseases, misunderstandings, evil deeds. We often forfeit peace when we start conflicts ourselves or when others sin against us. The behavior of others may negate our peace. When Paul says, if possible there, I think he's reminding us of this, of a sobering reality, that it, that it takes one more than one person to live in to live peacefully, uh, to restore a troubled relationship. And it's especially hard to live at peace when when a person who's harmed us refuses to acknowledge what they've done. So that limitation, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, is is essential and it's an important reminder. We cannot fix every problem. We cannot heal, heal every broken relationship. We are not God. We may well encounter people Who flat-out reject peace and there's a time to to stop trying to make peace with them I I think of Paul to Titus in chapter 3 verse 10 he says as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he's self-condemned a lack of repentance makes genuine peace impossible apart from at least the Spirit's intervention. But Paul's point here is that we would strive to live at peace whenever we can. That It should be the general default of our our lives. As far as it depends on us, he says, "This this is our part. We should strive for this. This should be our default as believers in Christ. Here's some wisdom, some practical ways maybe to think about this, and there's a ton of them in the Scripture, but the Proverbs in particular have several of these. Let me share a few verses with you. Proverbs ten twelve reminds us that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It's a call to think about your motive, isn't it? What are you loving? What are you hating? Are you hating and loving the right things? Proverbs fourteen nine says, fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. Literally, the, the, the sense is there that fools mock at making amends. That's the point of the guilt offering. They mock at the idea of making amends for sin, but the upright, the godly, what are they doing? They're pursuing. They're pursuing it. They're pursuing goodwill. We should ask ourselves, is that the direction of my heart? Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's a good one, isn't it? It's a great one uh, in parenting as well, but but if you're striving to live peaceably with someone, you're thinking about the the way that you answer. Not just the answer, but the way that you answer uh, as well. Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Is there a pattern of behavior in my life that's causing conflict with people around me? Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Right, literally starting a quarrel is is like breaching a dam. So, So he says, drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Proverbs twenty nine twenty two. a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. These verses, and there's obviously many w- more in the Scripture we could look to, but they instruct us on how we should strive to, to live peaceable lives. As much as possible, Paul says, it's dependent on us. Third, Paul says, we must leave vengeance to God. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Literally, give place to God's wrath. Don't avenge yourselves, Don't return evil for evil. Don't take justice in your hand. Don't go around trying to punish people and set things right Uh, in that way. You're not called to do that. Now, in the next chapter, Paul is going to talk about the place of the civil authorities in administering justice in this life. But we're not about to be the kind of people who are settling the scores all the time with the people around us. But rather, he says, leave it to the wrath of God. It means entrusting your, your hurt to God. Paul cites Deuteronomy 32 there when he says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God, God reminds us He is the one who does the repaying, so we don't need to worry about it. God is the one in His perfect justice who's going to see that, that people reap what they sow. If you've been wronged, He says, be patient. God is going to render the justice. That's hard, isn't it, though? It's really hard. It's hard because we, 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 we might trust that promise, but we have a hard time being patient and waiting uh, for that promise. We want justice now. But, but God says, trust me in this. I'm gonna bring about in my own time. A.W. Tozer once said like this. He said, the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine, he said. When, when you take miters, when we, we take miters into our own hands and seek to retaliate, we're interfering with God's justice. He says, vengeance is mine. Our Lord told a beautiful parable about this in the, the Gospels. You remember the widow who, who had a, a, a legal mitre and she kept bringing it to that judge, and but the judge would not hear. I think it's in Luke chapter 18, and the judge the picture there in that parable had no regard for God, no regard for man just just he was just a self centered man but this widow was persisting, and she keeps bringing the matter to him and eventually wears him down and Finally, just to get rid of her, the Bible says that he heard her case i mean he was so worn out and the point of the parable is if if an unjust judge like this one will take time to execute justice how much more will your heavenly father be quick to render justice here's what it says luke 18:7 and will not god give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay long over them jesus says i tell you he will give justice to them speedily and romans chapter 2 verse 5 Paul talked about a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And we don't need to doubt this, church. There is coming a day when God will right every wrong. Every wrong. But in the meantime, Paul says, we have to entrust those wrongs to him. And sometimes you have to do it over and over again, don't you? Sometimes you entrust it to God, and then the next day you wake up mad again. Anybody ever had that happen? And you've got to give it over to God again. And then it might go away for a few days, and then something might happen. You might wake up, and you might be mad again. And you've got to entrust it to God. God has the power to remember our sins no more, so to speak, but we are not capable of doing that, and so we have to continually give them over to God. And the reason we do that is because we don't want a root of bitterness to grow up in our hearts. Hebrews 8. So we give them over. Fourth, he says, in the meantime, we should serve our enemies. We should do good to them. Verse 20, to the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Here's to be the focus, he says, again, which is so difficult. He says, instead of thinking about revenge and retaliation and all the evil things you like to say and do, he says, focus your attention here, repaying enemy, your enemy with good. Repay them with kindness, with goodness. For by doing so, he says, you'll heap burning coals on his head. There, there's, there's quite a, an interesting thing there. We're, we're not sure exactly what this means uh, in some way, but it, but, but, but it seems to be a, a metaphor of, of some kind of shame or conviction, perhaps that Paul is saying when you treat an enemy with love and you feed him and you quench his thirst and you put on his head that when you do that you're a sense putting shame on his head, a burning kind of a shame, and not a shame necessarily of hurt but but the hope is a shame that is willing to to cause the person to turn from what they're doing to be healed, to repent, to come back you're you're doing this out of, out of love for them you're you're not Be nice to them because you want to be evil to them. You're being nice to them because you sincerely want them to turn. To recognize their sin and come to faith in God. Charles Hodge writes this, Nothing is so powerful as goodness. Men whose minds can withstand argument and whose hearts rebel against threats are not proof against the persuasive influence of unfeigned love. And again, that sounds so hard. Where do we look, where do we see this? Where where do we even look at something like this? We see this in our Lord, don't we? Is this not the way he loved? 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this, that is suffering, for to suffering you have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's his example. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for you were, like, you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What a great reminder for us. Not one of us would be a Christian today if Christ had not loved his enemies and overcome our evil by his death and resurrection. It was by His conduct and, and suffering and before His enemies that, that Jesus won us. And it is by His death and the power of His resurrection that enables us to live like Him. Which finally leads us to the, the, the climax, I think, of the, of the chapter when Paul's command here. He says, overcome evil with good. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. It's, it's an incredible statement. I think this is the, 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 I say climax because this seems to be the grand strategy of, of Jesus and, 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 and the grand strategy of His church and, and the gospel. To, to overcome evil with, with good. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, don't let your enemy's sin produce sin in you. That's what he's saying. Don't let what somebody else is doing cause you to sin. Let, let your love instead, his love, triumph over evil doings. Don't be overcome by evil means don't be overcome by his evil, by the, by the evildoer's evil. Don't be overcome by that. Don't let another person's evil make you evil. John Piper explains it like this. He says, when you let your adversary make you you evil, then he becomes the victor. If you let a person's sin govern your emotions so that your sinful anger or your misery or your depression is owing to their evil, you are being overcome by evil. Paul says you don't have to be overcome that way. This is so applicable today, isn't it? When you think about that element, the whole victim mentality of our day, uh, which, you know, people who feel or do evil things and then they blame it on somebody else's evil that caused them to do it. No, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil. Don't let another person's sin provoke you. Don't give in to that kind of power. And here's why. You, you, You don't have to because Christ is our Lord. Christ is the king of our lives. Christ is the one who leads and governs my life and my emotions and my responses. And so when someone does evil to you, you should say, you are not my Lord. Christ is my Lord. And I respond this way because of him. This is, I think, what Paul means when he says, overcome evil with good. Let your love triumph over... Over evil's hostility. Now, now, don't, don't, don't be misled here. Be fooled. Does that mean that if you, if you give him water and, and, and food and you quench his thirst and fill his belly, will that evil person stop being evil? Will they repent and turn? Maybe not. Maybe. We pray so. But, but, but they may not be. We know this because even with all of Jesus' love and response, not everybody turned to Him. But here's what it means. It means that either, either you triumph through the repentance of your enemy, which is what we hope, or you triumph through the judgment of your enemy as God deals with them. If you love your enemy and bless those who curse you, verse 14, and, and don't return evil for evil and entrust yourselves to God, not avenging yourself and living peace with, with as much as possible, Paul is saying, You will be the conqueror. You, you will be the overcomer no matter how your enemy responds. And this is the beauty of this because either way, God's love and his justice prevails. It prevails. It's quite quite interesting here that the Scripture is so black and white. They, they, this is like a stark alternative that is set before us in this passage, isn't it? There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. You're either overcome by evil or you've been overcome by Christ who enables you to overcome evil. It's one or the other. And in this way, we remind ourselves again that this is not just a call to imitate Christ's behavior. My goodness, we could never do this on our own. This is a call to trust Christ. This is a call to trust Him for His salvation. This is His way. This is His gospel. This is how He works. This is what He has lived before us through the cross and resurrection. This is how He overcomes evil with good. And we do the same when we put our trust in Him, when we follow Him. Have you trusted Him today Are you turning from your sin? Are you turning from evil and trusting in Christ today? That is the only way to victory. Amen, church? The only way. Lord, these are hard words. And I know that they are worthy more than just the thoughts that we have just given to them in these few minutes. But I pray that they would be on our minds and hearts. Uh, not just for the remainder of this service, Lord, but for the remainder of the day and the week and the days to come. Uh, because this is, this is real. We know that, that these very, this very passage will be lived out, perhaps even in our own lives today or tomorrow when we're challenged by these things Lord, please help us in these moments, as your people, to overcome evil with good, as you have laid out for us here. And I pray, Lord, for the, those that may be here today and, and, and maybe they've not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that, that today in the hearing of this, they would see the amazing love that Christ has showed them as a sinner. Dying for them, rising again, that today might be the day of salvation as they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. We pray that for them right now. Lord, as we sing this final song, I pray that you would help us to think about these things as we talk about building the decision we're going to build our lives on your love, a love that is... Seen through the cross, Lord, and and through the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us now. This song, may it be a time of commitment in our own hearts to this very thing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word centered gospel-focused and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.